Our attention this time of year is wrapped up in lights, nostalgic holiday cartoons, family get-togethers, either voluntary or obligatory, and the sound of Mariah Carey coming out of every speaker. While the bright, tinsel sparkliness of the holiday season can be comforting, even inspiring, there is another side to this time of year we tend to overlook. For nearly every cheerful folktale of the season, there exists a counterpart. The short winter days and long winter nights gave our ancestors plenty of ideas to ruminate with, and hundreds of years later, we can see how creatively dark some of their folktales became. Not that long ago, telling ghost stories was a part of the holiday season, and it's a tradition I wish we could bring back, and not just because I can't let go of Halloween until December. There's something thrilling about listening to old folk stories this time of year. And there are plenty to choose from. Krampus has made quite a comeback in recent years. Grilla, the Icelandic Christmas troll, and her dreaded Yule cat, who were said to prowl the countryside eating people this time of year, were put in the spotlight on this podcast a couple years ago. This year I wanted to dig up something extra obscure and interesting for you. And I think I found it. I ended up traveling down quite a few medieval rabbit holes because I wanted to cover something that wasn't only myth, but had a real tie to history. I ended up in the 1400s, somewhere between Bavaria and the northwest of France. So this year, grab a slice of fruitcake, then throw it in the garbage where it belongs, and gather around for the myth and the history of Hans Trapp the Christmas Scarecrow. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. I think the best way to go about this story is to give you the history first, and then the myth that evolved from it. Because the legend of Hans Trapp centers around the life of a real person, a medieval knight by the name of Hans von Trotha. Like many people whose stories and deeds exist in centuries past, there aren't as many reliable or numerous sources as we'd like. The sources in English on von Trotha were disappointingly few. Most of the good stuff is in German, which is a language I do not speak. I will be trying to correctly pronounce a lot of German place names in this episode, and I spent a frustratingly long amount of time trying to make sure I had the right pronunciations. So if you are a native German speaker, and I know there are some listeners who tune in from Germany, you have my sincerest apologies in advance for what I do to your language in this episode. As for Hans, we're not totally sure of the exact year he was born. The few sources I did find placed his birth either in or around 1450. We know Hans had an older brother named Philo von Trotha, who eventually became Bishop of Merseburg, Germany. And we know Philo was born in 1443, so putting Hans' birth year around 1450 seems legit. The von Trothas were an aristocratic Catholic family in the German Palatinate, a region in the southwest of Germany. 
Over the centuries, the regions where Hans spent the majority of his life were sometimes German territory, sometimes French territory. Today, they're mostly German territory. The Palatinate, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, was divided geographically into two territorial clusters, the Upper Palatinate and the Rhinish or Lower Palatinate. These were then further divided into 45 different smaller territories, all under the authority of the Counts Palatine, authorities who served as stewards of royal territories in the absence of the Holy Roman Emperor. In the 14th century, a hundred years before Hans, the Counts Palatinate won the right to participate in the election of the Emperor in something called the Golden Bull of 1356. This allowed the Counts to serve as Prince Electors, which was a big deal. If that all seemed confusing, it's because it is confusing. When Hans von Trotha was around 20 years old, he went to work for the Electors in the Lower Palatinate in Heidelberg. He served for around 10 years and presumably did his job well, because he was given the hereditary fiefs of two different castles. This meant Hans was given the rights to the two castles, but in return he would have to give fealty, service, and allegiance to the elector named Philip the Sincere who had given them to him. Because these fiefs were hereditary, Hans could pass the castles down to his heir, as long as that heir also swore service and fealty. The two castles were Berwartstein Castle and Grafendon Castle. Grafendon Castle had been built almost two centuries prior, in 1287, and it had not been well kept. It had fallen victim to a devastating siege in 1462, and although some repairs were made afterwards, by the time Hans was given his fief in 1480, it was in bad shape. By 1485, only five years later, the castle was described as uninhabitable. Today, it's a ruin of crumbling towers and overgrown walls. Due to Grafendon's castle's dilapidated state, Hans spent most of his time at Berwartstein Castle, whose amenities were much more agreeable. Even today, Berwartstein Castle looks incredible. It has a working restaurant, a souvenir shop, events, guided tours, and you can even rent out a room for a stay. From the castle's website, which I'll put in the show notes, it looks like the restaurant is lit by candles and torches, and all the servers are dressed like they're from the Middle Ages which is fantastic. Berwartstein Castle was first mentioned in a document in 1152, so that's probably when it was built. According to the castle's own website, early in the castle's history, the Trapp family, who held the castle well before Hans ever did, acted as robber barons, or basically warlords, while in possession of the castle. Over the centuries, the castle changed hands a few times, usually violently. The Trapp family's history as robber barons would eventually be incorporated into the myth that von Trotha's life would inspire. Eventually, Berwartstein Castle was taken by the lords of Weingarten and von Durkheim, and in 1347 they gave it to Weissenberg Monastery, which was run by Benedictine monks. Turns out, monasteries weren't always the safest places to live. 
1453, the monastery came under the protection of one of the elector Palatinates. Turns out the nobility weren't always the best people to trust, and the elector Palatinate soon considered the castle, and everything in it, his property. However, the Benedictine abbot in charge of the Weissenberg Monastery still considered Berwartstein Castle to be the legal property of the monastery. So when Philip the Sincere gave it to Hans von Trotha in 1480, the abbot was not pleased, as he didn't think it was the elector's legal right to give it to anyone. The knight and the abbot would butt heads as to who owned the castle for years. Had the Elector Palatinate not claimed Berwartstein Castle as his, history probably wouldn't have remembered the name Hans von Trotha, because this feud was the first chapter in the lore that would grow out of his life. After moving into Berwartstein Castle, Hans quickly began fortifying it, so much so that it came to have the reputation as being impregnable. He improved the outwork, and in 1485 had an imposing 15-meter tower built on a tall northern slope a few hundred meters from the castle. This tower was an intimidating, visible reminder of how fortified Berwartstein Castle had become, and strengthened the fierce reputation of its new caretaker. The tower became known as Little France, and it's still there, a strong, silent sentinel overlooking the castle. These renovations must have pleased Philip the Sincere, because a year after Hans moved in, the elector also bequeathed to him all of the, quote, accessories of the castle. This meant Hans now didn't just have the right over the whole castle, but now he had claim to everything in it. The abbot of Weissenberg Monastery, who still claimed he had legal ownership over the castle and its, quote, accessories, had been upset when the elector had, in his mind, illegally given Hans Berwartstein Castle. Now he was fuming. The abbot protested vehemently and refused to concede the castle or any of its property to Hans, and Hans grew increasingly irritated. This was the late European Middle Ages, and although the optimal solution to this feud over property would have been a civil and litigious one, Hans von Trotha decided to retaliate instead, with a medieval temper tantrum. And the object of his anger would not directly be the abbot. It would be all the villagers in the town of Weissenberg, which was around five miles, or eight kilometers, downhill from the castle. Weissenberg got its water from the Weisslauter River, a tributary of the Rhine. Hans von Trotha dammed up the river in retaliation against the abbot, which removed the entire vital water supply from the village and everyone in it. The dam created a reservoir, which flooded everything behind the dam that wasn't uphill. Seems like a bit of an overreaction. The abbot's response would be equally disastrous and would again cause more damage to the villagers of Weissenberg than it would to Hans. The abbot had the dam torn down, and all that water from the new reservoir flooded the town. This flood didn't only cause what were probably some extremely unsanitary conditions, but it devastated the town economically, 
The town's businesses and homes were flooded, and recovery would be slow as the people of Weissenberg once again found themselves in the middle of a feud that had nothing to do with them. Since general destruction and devastation hadn't worked, the abbot finally asked the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to intervene. But Rome was over 900 miles away. Far enough for Hans to decide he could just ignore whatever warning the emperor had for him. So that's what he did, and he and the abbot continued their feud. If Hans wouldn't listen to the emperor, the abbot figured that surely he would listen to the pope. In 1491, now 11 years into this feud, the abbot asked for assistance from Pope Innocent VIII. I couldn't find whether this pope just didn't intercede, or if he did, and Hans just decided to ignore him like he had the emperor. Either way, Hans stood his ground. But popes were like buses in those days, and a new one came around about every 15 minutes. The abbot wrote to the next pope, Alexander VI, who took power the very next year. This pope took the abbot's plight seriously and summoned Hans to the papal court, because now his loyalty to the church was under question. This was a big deal, so Hans decided that he wouldn't ignore the summons, but he wouldn't go to Rome either. Instead, he wrote a letter to the pope, in which he wrote at length about how his faith was exceptional. Then he angrily accused the Pope with all sorts of charges on immorality and corruption. This kept making me think about that scene in Mean Girls, when Regina George furiously writes about how much she hates Lindsay Lohan's character. Hans's letter was not well-received, and the Pope could not let this rejection of his authority go. Hans von Trotha was excommunicated. That was the harshest sentence the Pope could give. Not wanting to be associated with this now excommunicated knight, the Elector Palatinate completely renounced Hans von Trotha. To make matters worse, shortly after his excommunication, Maximilian I, the then German king who would become the Holy Roman Emperor, imposed an imperial ban on Hans. Although this seemed like it was the worst-case scenario for Hans von Trotha, he would end up doing just fine for himself. He ended up serving at the French royal court, and must have proven himself valuable, because King Louis XII gave him the distinction of Chevalier d'Or, which literally means Knight of Gold. He died in 1503, naturally. After his death, all charges against him were dropped. And that is where the story of Hans von Trotha could have ended. But while his true story had ended, his lore was just beginning. And it would transform his very real history as Hans von Trotha, Knight of Gold, into the myth that would turn him into a scarecrow. The legend goes something like this. A small boy, the son of a shepherd, was walking alone. 
It was snowing, and it was cold. The kind of cold that burns any skin not carefully covered by thick winter clothing. The boy was walking down a dark road that wound through a forest, perhaps in northeastern France or southwest Germany. Both sides of the Rhine have their stories. This particular night would have seemed dreary, but the promise of Christmas, which was just a day away, made the long, frigid twilight just a little more bearable. The thought of hearth and home with the smell of mauling spices made the boy quicken his pace as his feet crunched over the snow. The boy had traveled this road so many times, the darkness was no hindrance. He could have closed his eyes and still found his way, unaided by the blue glow of moonlight that filtered through the bare trees. But what made this particular journey so different from the hundreds of other times his feet had passed over the well-worn road was that although he didn't know it, the boy wasn't alone. Ahead, just off the road, crouched in the thickness of the trees, hidden in the shadows where the slivers of moonlight could give no warning, was a man. A madman who had lost his mind and dressed in the guise of a scarecrow. His long white beard and pointed hat stuffed with straw, an unnatural silhouette in an otherwise perfect forest. He waited, hungry, aching for the taste of human flesh. He was so ready to pounce on the unaware traveler that if the boy had listened closely on this night where all sound had been deadened by the snow, he could have heard the heartbeat of the monster waiting in the darkness. When the boy passed, the scarecrow leapt at him and ended his life with the sharp end of a stick. After carrying the boy's body back to his hut, the Christmas scarecrow prepared a fire. He planned to roast the boy and feast upon his flesh. But just as he was preparing to take his first bite, a divine bolt of lightning struck the scarecrow, killing him instantly. It was an end too merciful for such an evil creature. But some say that around Christmas time, the spirit of Hans Trapp, evil and hungry as ever, still lurks through the forests, prowling the countryside, his clothes, beard, and hat stuffed with straw, searching for misbehaving children that dare venture out too far from home on the cold, wintry nights. So, pretty dark for a holiday story, but effective. Grim and gory stories like this have been told in the regions surrounding the old castles of Hans von Trotha for the better part of 600 years. This is far from the only dark tale told during the holiday season. Hans Trapp the Christmas Scarecrow is but one of many holiday horrors that have fallen behind the lighter, less terrifying stories we're used to now. We know the real Hans von Trotha was pardoned after his death, but that didn't stop his life story from being turned into a villainous legend that evolved over the centuries. Exactly why is up for speculation, 
but having a hand in economically destroying a town over a row with an abbot about property he technically stole didn't help his reputation. Neither did ignoring the emperor or telling the pope exactly where to stuff it. The Catholic Church was an incredibly powerful institution in Hans's day, and he had brazenly rejected its authority. At some point, the life of Hans von Trotha became intermingled with the history of the Trapp family who had acted as warlording robber barons. This convolution turned Hans von Trotha into Hans Trapp. As Hans amalgamated from history into legend, he became a dark figure. Legend says that in life, Hans was a greedy and wicked man, that he became merciless and feared. There is an obvious allusion here to his feud with the abbot over property and the damage done to Weissenberg. It's said that his thirst for power was so insatiable he made a deal with the devil in order to become even more powerful and wealthy. Hearing of this, the Pope himself excommunicated Hans Trapp, after which his lands and property were confiscated and he was exiled. So far, it's easy to see how the life of Hans von Trotha was dovetailing with the myth of Hans Trapp. His acquisition of property, rejection of authority, and exile all show up in the story. But from there, the myth really takes off. We know the real Hans moved to the French court of Louis XII, but the mythical Hans was said to have fled to the mountains of Bavaria, where he built a makeshift hut and survived alone in the wilderness. With nothing to do but brood and sulk without the power and wealth he had so fiercely craved, the mythical Hans grew mad and began developing a dark and irresistible desire to consume human flesh. Eventually, he stuffed his clothes with straw and adorned the guise of a scarecrow before murdering the poor young son of a shepherd to eat his flesh. There is zero record of the real Hans von Trotha ever eating or wanting to eat human flesh. This part of the myth was probably just a way to further villainize Hans. Plus, it was a great way to scare children into behaving around Christmas time. And this myth is still told in several regions of France and Germany. Sometimes he's referred to as Hans Trot, sometimes as the Black Knight. Some legends even describe him as accompanying Saint Nick, punishing the kids who made the naughty list. It's funny how history unfolds and how our choices write our stories. Sometimes you can start a new life for yourself, find meaning and purpose, and even after making several colossal mistakes, which hopefully you learn something from, end up completely pardoned and remembered as a chevalier d'or, a knight of gold. And sometimes you can write an infuriated letter after letting your anger get the better of you and end up as an obscure medieval cannibalistic scarecrow. I wondered, as I researched this story, what the real Hans von Trotha would have thought about the myth that grew out of his choices. Maybe he'd be irritated, maybe he'd be amused, or maybe he'd just be content knowing that he was remembered at all. Thank you so much for listening today. This is the last episode of 2021, 
and ending the year with an obscure cannibalistic scarecrow was fun. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope the last chapter of 2021 closes with a happy ending for you, and that 2022 brings an even greater new beginning. Huge shout-out to my newest patron, Marie. Marie, may all of your dreams come true, and your new year be free of flesh-eating scarecrows. I'll be back again in three weeks, as always, with more history for ya. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious, and watch out for medieval scarecrows. Until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.